Luke chapter 9 is where we'll find ourselves this morning. We are doing a short series, maybe about six weeks, because you ask, you can go on our bulletin, e-bulletin, and send in a question to the pastoral staff. Uh, some of you have already done so. We appreciate that. Um, we have a lot of questions actually brought in. We're going to try to uh, boil it down to five or six ones that are um, kind of connected with each other. Um, if your question is not being answered during this series, we'll make the announcement in a week or two what they are. Um, feel free to contact one of us, uh, and we'd be more than happy to talk through, through that question that you might have that we haven't um, touched on because we can't, we can't do all the questions. But. So that's going to happen in the beginning of August. It'll take us into September, and then we'll pick up the Gospel according to Luke um, after that. So uh, thank you for sending in a question. You can go to our bulletin, kingschapel.net slash bulletin, and fill out that question. Uh, if you have a question you want us to answer, a theological question, cultural question, um, just as I said before, no questions about cars or anything because I have no idea. Okay. Luke chapter 9. We're studying this morning, we're in chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, and it's just, it's just been a wonderful, I hope it's been to you, a wonderful walk and journey uh, through this marvelous historical account of the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. And we've come this morning to a strategic place in the ministry of Christ, the sending out of the 12 apostles, as Laura read to us that scripture verse. Now, just imagine for a moment, if you can, being one of the, the 12 apostles, Okay? You're with Jesus during his Galilean ministry. You're going from town to town, village to village, and crowds, every time you go to a new place, the crowds are getting bigger and bigger, and they're growing and growing, and you're one of the 12 walking with Jesus. Yeah, there, there are many disciples at this point. There's crowds that haven't made a decision yet, but you're one of that inner group. Remember the day, in, I think it was in chapter 6, Jesus on the mountain praying all night. And a vigil, and he comes down off the mountain, there's many disciples, and he walks through the crowd, and he's like, you, and you, and you. And it says he calls the disciples together and chose from this group 12 men who he named apostles. 12 men witnessed a lot. Jesus went from town to town healing and and and. and casting out demons. In chapter 4, it says that everyone who came to Jesus in Capernaum was healed. Everyone he laid hands on and healed every single person. He didn't do it all the time, but here he did in chapter 4 in Capernaum. We've seen him d- deliver men and women from, from being uh, oppressed by demons. He displayed his power and authority over the, the, the defile, the, 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 um, those that were unclean. He cleansed a leper in chapter 5. Last week, Pastor Chris did a great job preaching chapter 8 where there was a woman with a bleeding disorder for 12 years. She was unclean. She was ostracized from, from her family, from her friends, and even from the fellowship and community of faith. And God healed her and restored her. Normally, when the unclean touches the clean, that which is clean becomes unclean, but not when you touch Jesus. And family, that is the same today. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what shame or sin has been done to you or you have done yourself, when you touch Jesus, we are cleansed and washed. And praise God for that. Then, of course, he had power and authority over death itself. Back in chapter 7, as a widow, her, she, her husband's dead. She has no children but one son. He's dead. Jesus touches the open casket. Remember, and he tells the boy to get up, to arise, and that's exactly what he does. He sits up and in love, God, uh, the Lord Jesus, God himself, in the flesh, gives back this only son to this widower. Last week, again, Chris talked about Jairus. 
a ruler of the synagogue, daughter, 12 years old, had died, and Jesus touches her by the hand and, and rises her from the dead, and, and her spirit returns to her body, and she sits up. Jesus displays power over raging storms. Rebuke the windstorm, the raging sea in chapter 8. Miracle after miracle over all of creation. Power and authority over all things pointing, as we said, to what? The reality that the king of the kingdom has come. That's the point. The kingdom of God has come in the person and work of Jesus. That's why we've been seeing over and over as well in these first eight chapters that he's been, Jesus has been preaching about the kingdom of God. King Jesus has come, the promised Messiah has come, the anointed one has come. And that's really the main point, was the proclamation of the king of kings has come. The inauguration of the kingdom has come because the king has come. Everything else, all the miracles, all the power, all the authority is pointing to, is a signpost pointing to the reality that the king of kings is here. Inaugurating his eternal kingdom. He said it's already because Christ is present and it's not yet because there'll be a day when he will consummate it all. And that brings us to our text this morning. Jesus is, is now extending that mission, that, that preaching mission, that healing mission to his 12 apostles. Okay, And we'll see this text under three headings as he sends them out on mission. Well, first we'll see the mission's provision and the command, the mission's instructions and responses, and the mission's confusion and curiosity when we get to Herod, and we'll go right into communion from there. First thing we'll see, in reading these verses, again, verses 1 and 2, we have to keep in mind, I've talked about this before, I'm going to talk about it again. These are 12 men who are called, Together, they are given power and authority and sent on mission to, to, to a specific mission with a unique task to fill. Gives them, Jesus tells them, they're called, they're given, they're sent by a group of 12 men like no other people. They're appointed, they've been anointed. 12 men, Jesus sending out with extraordinary power. Although there are things in this text, and we're going to talk about it, that applies to all of us, I think we must see, in order to do my job properly to exposit this, this passage, that there is a uniqueness to this passage as well. We dealt with a little bit in chapter 6, uh, verses 12 through 16, with the, with the calling of the apostles. You can go on our website and, and look at it, but I, 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 I just feel obligated to share with you again a little bit that there, is, there are 12 apostles, capital A apostles, that's it. If you remember, Jesus was not the first one to have apostles. The Greek verb apostolo, apostle, we get the word apostle, is the word that means to send. We see that verb in verse 2 of our text. And he sent them, apostolos, he's sending them. In that day, in Jesus' day, there were 70 men who ruled in the synagogue in Jerusalem, in the temple. Those 70 men were called the Sanhedrin. They had a lot of power, a lot of authority. And they had a shaliah, which is an Aramaic for apostles. And these men would go out from this 70-man body to go deal with disputes about the law and other things. And they would go in the authority of the Sanhedrin, this powerful gathering of 70 men into the temple. And they would go with their authority, their power. And what they said came from the Sanhedrin, very important. Jesus is saying, look, I have my own sent ones. I have my own apostles. I have my own uh, shaliah. I have my own representatives. 
Those who will teach and preach and act under my authority. They will have my authority, have my power. They will teach what I have taught them. They're my official representatives. Everybody understood that in that day. Okay? So we don't have capital A apostles today. That's why when Judas died, you look at Acts chapter 1, they said, let's get a man to, who has been with us from the very beginning. Saw the ministry of Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. He can, he can, he can witness to the reality of the resurrection of Christ. Scripture also says that these 12 apostles are what? Revelation 21. Written, their names are on the stones of the wall of the new Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Something very unique about the 12. Now, I want to go on a little bunny trail. I'm sorry, I just got to do it. Because it's been coming up a lot lately in ministry uh, for me and for the other pastors here. And maybe you run into this whole idea of this so-called five-fold ministry. Maybe you've heard that. They get it from Ephesians chapter 4. And we have a five-fold ministry where it says that God has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And they, they institute and say, well, I'm an apostle because it says in Ephesians 4 that that's what God has given to the church. Turn, if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Ephesians. We're just going to go there for a minute. And I want to deal with this. We have not looked at these passages yet, but we are today. So... What I love about expository preaching is when you get to chapter 4 in Ephesians, if you go through the book, you have to get to chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and then you get to chapter 4, right? I mean, I went to public school, I can count to 5. Um, so when you get to chapter 2, verse 19, the book of Ephesians is about how God has, in one man, through Jesus Christ, has brought together Jew and Gentile. It's, it's a main theme in Ephesians. And when you get to chapter 2, he's talking about it, the work of the cross, how God brought peace to us through the cross, and he brought peace between Jew and Gentile in, 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 in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, I'm using a New American Standard on this verse because it picks up a Greek verb. I'll explain to you. Chapter 2. So then, the point is, uh, Christ has made a way to bring both Gentile and Jew together under one person, in one body, in one church, in one fellowship, in one community. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says this in the New American Standard. So then, you, Gentile, are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with all the saints. We are all God's household. Catch that, God's household. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation. Now, if you have ESV, it says built on the foundation. New American Standard picks up that Greek verb. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophet, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Catch that, okay? Having been built, ours passive participle. In other words, it's been finally and fully and completely laid the foundation by the triune God. That's why it's a passive verb. Christ, God himself did it through the proclamation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Chapter 2, verse 19. When you get to Ephesians chapter 3, it says this. Paul's writing. When you read this, what is he talking about? The letter that he just wrote. When you read this scripture in Ephesians 3, 4, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. I'm writing it to you. Which was not known to the sons of men in other generations, and has now been revealed to who? His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery has been hidden before. It's not anymore. I'm telling you it. Is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through what? The gospel. All right, chapter 3, verse 6. So it's not, a, it's not a, a human message, divine message. 
They were given divine revelation, the mystery of Christ, to reveal to us this morning as well, and the Ephesian church. God laid the foundation of the church through the receivers and recipients of direct revelation. We have it, we just read it. The unfolding of mystery has been given to the apostles now is in the New Testament, the letter Paul wrote. And in this building metaphor, you could see it says, we are the household of God, talking to believers at Ephesians, the foundation is what? The apostles and the prophets. And Jesus is really holding it all together as the, as the cornerstone. That, that's the point. So when you get to chapter 4, verse 11, and it says, And he gave to the church apostles and the prophets. They're the foundations. He just said that. Of, of men who revealed the word of God that was once hidden. And now you have evangelists, shepherds, and teachers what, to equip the saint for the work of the ministry, for building up the body, chapter 2, uh, verse 4, building up the body, and he goes on to verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, we're not going to be tossed to and fro. In other words, God is building on this cornerstone, on, on this foundation, so that we would be mature. So when someone says, I am an apostle, they're claiming to be part of the foundation that has already been built. That they have the authority to write scripture. That's what Paul says they do. They have the authority to have new revelation. That's what they do. So if someone says, hey, I'm an apostle of Christ, you really do what Forrest did. And run. I'm running into it. So I just want to share it with you. Now, there are there lower a, uh, lowercase a apostles, people who are planting churches and maybe going into a, a new place that doesn't have it. I get all that. But the apostolic authority that's been going around these days is not biblical, not scriptural, and completely flies in the face of what Paul is writing in Ephesians. So I just thought I'd share. It's free. I won't charge you anymore. But these 12 men are called together with unique purpose to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, to deliver men from evil, from, from healing, cure, curing people who are sick. He has given them the necessary provision. Look what the text says. Power and authority has been given to them to conquer evil, to cure diseases. And authority is what? The right to do something. The power is the ability to do it. Think about that. He just gave them power and authority to 12 that goes out and do all this preaching, teaching, healing, and delivering. And who is one of the 12? Judas. Think about that for a minute. And then come back, and Levin said, hey, man, it worked great. And Judas like, no one would listen to me. Like, it didn't happen like that. Um, amazing, amazing of God's grace. Matthew says that they were, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this in their, in, their, in their gospel accounts. Matthew adds that they were to preach not only just the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God was what? At hand, near the message, they've been hearing Jesus preach over and over and over again. The kingdom of God is here. The king has come. Go and tell them about the reign of God. Go tell them about the promise that was given to the prophets in the Old Testament. From Genesis 3 on through Abraham and Israel. That there someday the kingdom will be restored. Listen, the king is here. The promise has come. His name is Jesus. And do it in the name of Jesus. Do it in the reality of the king has come. And that's why when Jesus was authenticating his ministry. We talked about this. 
through the, through the healing and through the, this, this rebuking of the wind and the sea completely stopping with his command. He's doing all this pointing to the reality and authenticating the truth that he is the king of kings. Now he tells his disciples, go and do the same thing. Go and do likewise. They know they had no power and authority in themselves. They didn't have that. They were to exercise their ministry through the power and authority that was distributed to them by Christ. The apostles were not trying to call attention to themselves, which so many people try to do, but to Christ and his gospel. And the miracles that they were performing was, was, was really uh, showing the world what they said about the king, about salvation, is true because the person of Christ is there and the work of Christ will come. All the miracles not only point to his authentication of Christ, but let me tell you something else those miracles did. It reveals the heart of God. It reveals the heart of God. It, it reflects the mercy of God. Think about it. God in the Lord Jesus is going to come someday and consummate his kingdom. And what they're showing the world, and what you need to see this morning too in these healings and these deliverances, is that God in his mercy and grace will someday remove every disease as sick people are getting well. Lepers lost their leprosy as cleansing will take place. Evil spirits are conquered. Sin is forgiven. It's a foretaste of the coming kingdom. That's what it was all about. I mean, Jesus has been saying, repent for the kingdom of God is, hand, is at hand. God's anointed is here. He's preaching throughout, and now he's sending his disciples to do the same thing. And, and it's obvious to Jesus, it should be obvious to us, that you could tell someone something to the, you know, to your blue in the face. You could, you could show them and you could tell them and you can go over and over, but no matter what you teach them, no matter what you show them, until they do it themselves, they're not going to get it. They're not going to get it. We call it mentorship, call it internship, or just call it what the Bible calls it, discipleship. Learning by doing. I think sometimes we sit back as disciples of Christ and followers of Christ. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ and other people are doing other things, you're not doing anything. Well, in order to get in the game, you can't watch what people do and you can't listen to what people are doing. You have to get in the game and do what people are doing. Jesus understood that. Learning by doing. Now, God, can God heal? I don't want to say that God can't heal. I'm not even going to say that God cannot confirm the gospel through miraculous things. I'm not saying he can't. But all of us have been sent, every one of us in this room, have been sent to show compassion and mercy and love and generosity to those in need. Dr. Phil Reinken in his commentary, Reformed Expository Commentary, says this. How do people know that we are telling the truth about salvation, especially when they cannot see Jesus in person? People do not know this by our miracles ordinarily, but as a community of God's people, we confirm the truth by our Love. I love that. We confirm the truth by our love, our suffering, and the sacrificial way we care for people's needs, end quote. Meet needs, help the hurting, right? So I, I've said this once before, too. Sometimes when you read a narrative, a historical narrative, um, you got to figure out, is this normative or is this just someone telling us what happened? Is it what they call prescriptive, something we should copy? Or is it descriptive, just telling us what an event is going on. So you have to be careful. That's why I say that there's no anointed 12 like Jesus in that day because that day has come and gone. But 
the mission, the mission is timeless. The gospel and the message of the gospel is timeless. Loving people, caring for people, serving people, having mercy and compassion on people is timeless. It reveals the heart of God who cares about the hurting, the suffering, the poor, and the sick. Jesus, that's what this mission to the world is, what we're calling this, because Jesus cared about the marginalized. Jesus cared about the poor and the downcast. And they are to go, not just with words, but with deeds to serve people. You can't be here more than a month and not hear us over and over here from the pulpit talk about demonstrating and declaring the gospel. Now, although demonstrating the gospel won't redeem anybody, won't forgive anybody, or justify anybody, it, it does reveal the heart of God. The message needs to come. You've heard that silly saying, you know, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. Well, it's a dumb saying because it is necessary. You have to use words. <laughs> when we love others, when we care for others, when we show mercy and compassion to others, it reveals the heart of God. It reveals the heart of God. And we have opportunities then to share with them the good news of the gospel. The very fact that we were unlovable and yet God loved us. We were running away from God, yet God cared for us. We could never earn his mercy and compassion, yet God pours it out on us through the gospel. We were poor, destitute, and helpless, and yet God was generous toward us in giving us the Lord Jesus Christ. And like Jesus and the apostles, the church has a double mission. We have a mission. We are to, to be called to ministry of both the word and deed. As a church, we're commanded to meet physical needs and talk to others and share the good news of the gospel that's what we're called that's what jesus did they're the sent ones next we see the instructions and in response verses three through five again uh it's not not all of what happens in this verse are a pattern you see verses three through five okay take take nothing with you he's not saying listen next time you go on a mission trip like don't just go with nothing <laughs> don't have any money Leave your luggage at home, never go out, and just, nope, nope, this is for a specific time for the apostles to go and have nothing in their bag, nothing to eat, but to go empty. Jesus, interesting, in Luke 22, we'll get there in five or six years, but Luke 22, Jesus turns to his apostles and he says this, I sent you out, remember that day, back in chapter 9? I sent you out without money bag, traveling bag, sandals. Did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, but now, I'm going to the cross, right before he goes to the cross. But now, whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a traveling bag. But he's telling his apostles here right now, travel lightly. Travel very lightly. Jesus is making it clear to them and teaching them a very valuable lesson. They were to go without provision for the journey, for their provision was going to have to be dependency on Christ. He basically said, look, take no food and no money. Don't take money even to buy food. Don't even have a goodie bag for an emergency. Just go trusting me all the way, and I'll provide for you. And that's a lesson, I think, I think at times, as I read that passage, I thought, well, are you, it's good to have and to prepare. I mean, that's smart. I'm not here for them. They were given a specific task. But if you're anything like me, hopefully you're not, but if you are, I think I can rely on myself more than I can rely on God. 
right? Don't, don't you find yourself kind of, you don't have to answer the question or raise your hand, but you find yourself like, I got this. And not that dependency. And I think the message here and the, and the principle here is to re- remember, apart from him, we could do nothing. That we need to be dependent upon him. And he's telling them, look, rather than relying on your own resources, apostles, entrust yourself entirely to the providential care of God. To trust God for everything they need. I think when we have a lot, it's easier to forget the Lord. Right? I mean, generally speaking. You know, rely upon me. And it's actually, think about this too. If they have nothing to eat, no place to lay their head, and they're going from village to villages, what does that do to them? It would bring a certain humility, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you be like, you know what, I'm dependent on people. Who likes to be there? My wife will tell you, my husband does not. It would humble them. Now, now they're living among those they're ministering to, and they're dependent on them for hospitality, not dependent as they are on God, but to get resources. And, and you know, th- there's a, there is a provision in the Mosaic Law. They're in Jewish towns and villages where they are to care for uh, strangers. It, it was very... Um, Sacred thing to care for and to love strangers. It was something that they were proud to do and wanted to do. But it's still humbling to ask people for help. And there, there have been some that take this, again, out of context. That missionary, if you're going to go overseas, go work for your money. We're not going to give you anything. You know, God will supply, just take it yourself. And that's, I think that's a bad exegesis or a bad understanding interpretation of this passage. Not only because Luke 22, he said, now take a bag with you. But they're in Israel still. It's expected to be cared for. They don't want to go from house to house begging. They're, they're going to go into a community. They're going to find a place where there is peace and they're welcome. And they're going to stay. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, stay in one place, receive what you need, and it's time to move on. Okay? Specifically, those who are in ministry are being cared for by those in their home. They're not to take any money with you. So let's not apply this to me and fire me and say you're not getting any money starting tomorrow, Okay? The Bible does say, on a little bunny trail here, the Bible does say that the church, and i got to tell you, King's Chapel is extremely generous. The Bible talks about those who minister to the people receive financial support from those they minister to. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said, yes, you know what, let the laborers, let the laborers worth their hire. And, and that's something I think King's Chapel, in fact, 1 Corinthians 9 says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, it's too much. If we reap spiritual things among you, question mark. So there's two extremes, right? We see as, as people minister in the name of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus, you have the prosperity crazy people out there who believe that I should have a private jet because I need to get there faster than everybody else. <laughs> Multiple houses, I, I don't know, I probably shouldn't say this, but why would anyone give that guy a dime? I don't get it, but anyway got like multiple jets but anyway okay it's sinful it's wicked it's an affront to the gospel i'll tell you right now i hate the prosperity gospel the other extreme is let's see how far we can go to starve the pastor out right <laughs> overwork stress depressed it doesn't matter let's let's just push them to the limit i think somewhere in the bible it said that jesus went fishing and found a coin in the fish's mouth maybe he should learn to fish or something of that nature you know um king chapel is always somewhere in the middle of ground i just want to say that from all the pastoral staff here um we have been provided for. 
we've been provided for. And we thank everybody for that. Again, it's not prescriptive, uh, something we should copy, but descriptive. And, and let, let me say this too uh, before we move on. There have been those, and anybody here of George Mueller, Mueller Bristol, England? Um, he, he was a man who, for himself, said, you know what? I'm not going to ask anyone for money ever. And anyone in his ministry was not allowed to ask. God's going to provide. And God did amazing things through him. And that was for himself. He just felt like this was my calling. I get that. In fact, there was a missionary to China, Hudson Taylor. You probably heard this quote. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Right? When we follow Jesus and we're living on mission with Jesus... And, and God wants us to, to share the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus, uh, the work of Jesus. God's going to give us that purpose and going to supply whatever we need to get the work done. He's not going to say, hey, go and do this. And man, I hope you make it. I hope you get it. I hope you have enough stuff. And I'll, I'm just going to be over here. You know what I mean? That doesn't work that way. He's going to give us the means necessary to fulfill the purpose God sent us to. And that is what Jesus is asking these 12 men to do. I'm sending you out with nothing. Trust me. Rely upon me. Don't even take an extra tunic. Just take one. And notice now what Jesus instructs them, though. He says, you're going to go and you're going to have, verse 4, a couple of two, two responses. There's going to be some of those who will receive you, and they're going to open that door for you, uh, and you're going to be teaching and, and giving them the message of the kingdom of God. They're going to welcome you, the apostles, into their home, and that's great. But listen, there's going to be rejection. Because the message of Christ and the kingdom of God is offensive to them, and they're not even going to give you a piece of bread. In that case, look what it says, shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against those who would not listen to them. Just in case that seems strange to you, the Jewish people would travel, of course they don't have roads like we do, dirt roads, and they would travel through Gentile lands, and as they came back to Israel, they were instructed, you don't, want to take, you don't want to take Gentile soil into Israel soil. It's a, a, a sense of um, a defilement or, yeah, it would defile the land. So they would shake the dust off of them before they step into Israel. Okay? So symbolically, what Jesus is saying to the apostles, he's saying, look, when, when those who are telling you, be gone, get lost, and you're offended by the message, they won't repent, they won't believe the gospel, shake your feet off, shake the dust off your feet as an act of renunciation of the responsibility of their rejection. They're not with you. And Jesus' directive, though, think about this for a minute. They're in Jewish communities, shaking the dust off their feet. Right? Not, not, not Gentile or pagan communities, but Jewish towns uh, where they're preaching the gospel. It's an action would be a, a testimony of the, the like paganism in that town because they will not receive the Jewish Messiah. And I don't think, I, you know, as I read the scriptures, I don't think this is uh, that Jesus is telling the apostles to have this short-fused, antagonistic, you know, approach to spreading the gospel. No, it, it, this is... A, this is by God's love and grace, this is a vivid, gracious warning to those who reject the kingdom message. It was an act of a merciful, prophetic act intended for people to think deeply about their sin. And that's same true today when we speak of, of, of the coming judgment of God. We're hoping that that awakens and, and you begin to think, like, someday I'm going to stand before God. Someday I'm going to answer for my sin. 
It's, a, it's, it's an act of, of compassion and mercy to say, hey, that's the reality. Run and flee to Christ. And Jesus is telling them, as you go as my disciples, living among the people, loving people, sacrificing and serving people, be attractive, but remember to say that Jesus Christ has come. He's the king, he's the Lord, he's the savior of the world. And when you do that, listen, it will be offensive to some. And that's what the church is, right? The church is a mixture of attraction and offensiveness. The true gospel message of exclusivity of Christ will be offensive to some people. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus himself when he said, I forgive sins, they're like, who does this guy think he is? And along comes his followers saying the same thing. The king has come. He forgives sins. He heals. He's demonstrating and authenticating the very kingdom that you have been waiting for, Jewish people, for thousands of years. He alone forgives sins. He alone is the king of kings. And that's going to be offensive. So on one hand, followers and disciples of Jesus, if you're here this morning, we are, we are, to, we are to be the most inclusive acting people the world has ever known. The most inclusive and loving deeds with no concerns of status, racial, or social, economic, or even sexual orientation. Inclusive in love, yet exclusive in message. Exclusive speaking, inclusive acting, talking and leading and loving people, but speaking the truth from the scripture. And today when we proclaim the forgiveness of sins, the need to repent from sin for order to have eternal life in Jesus Christ, people respond. They'll receive it or they're rejected to their condemnation. But I think it's important, as we see in this text, that Jesus sends them out into these lands, but he doesn't say if they reject you, never ever go back. Matthew 28, go into what? All the world. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, Luke, the author of Acts as well, says that Jesus told him to wait in Jerusalem to receive power, to be baptized by the Holy Spirit in order to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. The point is it's blowing up into all the world. So we don't share the gospel. We leave loving people, tell them about Jesus, and they don't want to hear it, and we're like, yeah, well, I'm never talking to you again. Just kick you to the curb. That, that's, that's not mission. That's not mission. We're to love and serve them, be kind to them, and be gracious to them. And if, whenever possible, praying and hoping that their acceptance, they would receive Christ. Listen, I know that some people will be offended by the gospel and kick us to the curb. What, nothing to do with us. I get that. Okay? Here's something I want you to think through. And here's something you guys could talk about in your community groups as well. When sharing the good news of Christ, even when it's offending people, remember that the gospel is not your message. It's not man-made. No human made it up. It's God's message. We declare and demonstrate the gospel. It's, it's essential to remember that. It's not advice. The gospel is not advice, but the magnificent announcement of what happened, what God did already in Christ. We cannot and we must not edit the events or hide or cover up the message. The truth is the heart of the gospel will be offensive. 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, Paul writes. 
The cross is foolishness to some. Blood, death, wrath, judgment, forgiveness, love, grace. But here's the deal, family. The gospel is offensive because what it does when you share the gospel, it unseats self from the heart's throne and establishes Christ as king. And people, you and I, before the grace of God came, feel the same way. Paul continues to preach. He knows that it's going to be received as folly, but he knows Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the message that God has given us to share. I've said this before. The church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. We don't make it up as we go. We follow the directive of the king of kings. The gospel is about God. I got to tell you, the scriptures is primarily about God. The unfolding reality and story of God taking the initiative to enter into human history in order to rescue rebels like you and I from what we justly deserve. It is, listen, it's a story of divine love, divine mercy, divine sacrifice, divine grace. Glorifies God first and foremost. That's why we can't change the message. We can look at methods, but we can't change the message. It's centered on God. It's accomplished by God. It, is, it magnifies God. And here's the thing. The gospel will be offensive to some, but you and I don't have to be offensive to them. Let the gospel be offensive. Don't, don't offend people sharing the truth of the gospel because you're you know, some self-righteous, pompous, Jerk or, you know what I mean, like just really uh, being very difficult. Be attractive, loving, caring, gracious, kind. And inoffensive as possible so the doors are open and you can share the good news of Christ. Yes, the gospel is offensive to some, but we are never to share it offensively, but graciously. Seasoned with salt. Do people know when you're talking about Jesus, when you're sharing about Christ, do they know? The joy of the Lord? Do they see it in your face? Do, do they see the, the, the joy that you have knowing and loving Jesus? To have their sins forgiven? What it means to taste grace? If by grace we are saved, we have been forgiven by King Jesus, and God is reigning on our throne and hearts, we're not going to be quick to lash out or lack sensitivity in our witnesses. Why? Because as we speak to them, we remember that was us, but for the grace of God. We understand that we too need grace. We understand that we too were dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2. That we were helpless and weak, but at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, Romans chapter 5. That God showed his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Go. Don't change the message. Love people. Some will receive it, some won't. Let the gospel be offensive. You be loving. You be kind, you be gracious. It's not your message, it's his. I think that's so important to remember. It's, and ultimately, they're, they're rejecting him, not you. Right? Ain't that true? Lastly, provision, command, instructions, and response, confusion, and curiosity. Now, when we get to, to um, verse 7, um, Luke has already told us back in chapter 3 that John has been imprisoned by Herod. His name is Herod Antipas, actually. We learn that John had been beheaded. We know that here in verse 9. We see it in other accounts, uh, Matthew and Mark. Uh, but we, he, we see here in verse 7 that 
um, Herod became aware of all that was going on. Verse 7, he was what? Perplexed. He was perplexed. He was hearing the, the things that were going around Israel and what was going on in the ministry. They said, some, some say that this, this Jesus is John the Baptist returning from the dead or he's working miracles through John the Baptist or, or Elijah or some other prophet. And if you look down at verse 18 and 19, you'll see Peter responds to Jesus when Jesus says to him, who do people say that I am? And he says, yeah, they say you're John the Baptist from the dead, you're Elijah, or some other prophet. Herod's question, though, when you see here in verses 7 through 9, his question really boils down what we've seen over and over and over again in Luke. And that is, who is this Jesus? That's the point. That's why Luke adds it here. There's still confusion. There's still curiosity. Who is this Jesus? We see it all over in the gospel according to Luke. The Pharisees, the religious leaders who watched Jesus hear a heal a paralytic man said and forgives him of sins says who is this who speaks blasphemy who can forgive sin chapter 7 verse 49 jesus forgives a sinful woman and the leaders say again who is this the disciples watched the jesus rebuke the wind and and calm the seas and obeyed him and they say who is this who commands even the sea the wind to obey him and it does John the Baptist sends his disciples, go find out, is this the guy? Is this the one we're looking for? And in order to answer this, look at, look at Herod wants to see Jesus. I want, I want to see him. And he will in chapter 23. Herod will meet Jesus. And then we find out in chapter 23, the only reason he wanted him to meet was to Jesus to do a miracle for him. He wanted to be a miracle worker, show me something. He wasn't interested in Jesus from what we know. He just wanted Jesus to perform a miracle. And Jesus, guess what? Doesn't do it. Oh, let me act like a magician. No, actually. And actually, the result, uh, um, uh, Jesus doesn't indulge in his, in his question or his asking of Jesus. And Herod treats him with contempt at that point. Peter will tell us in chapter 9, verse 20, and that's what I think all this is pointing to. When he says, when he says to Peter, you know the story. Who am I? You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Meanwhile, this Herod, who, by the way, is the son of Herod, who wanted all the babies murdered in Matthew 1. Wanted all the ba- that's, his, that's his son, Herod. He's running, he's overseeing Judea. And maybe he's hearing, maybe, maybe he's hearing all about Jesus is doing, rising people from the dead, and it's getting back to his ears. Maybe he's hearing all of what the disciples are doing in the name of Jesus, in the proclamation of the kingdom of Jesus. We don't know, but Jesus is, his word is getting out. There are people who are dead and alive going around saying, this Jesus Raise me from the dead. And people are like, what, am, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? This, this confusion. This, 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 who's this man? The apostles are doing their job. People are coming to faith, starting to hear about Jesus. And they're wondering, who is this Savior? But let me tell you, that's the same question for us this morning. You see, Herod was, was curious. If you read the text, all three of the gospel accounts, he was curious. He was, he was also, I think, riddled with guilt because of what he did. You can read the story another day. He was filled with fear, and he wanted to see Jesus, but not for the right reasons. Meanwhile, as this is going on, you see the contrast. Herod is curious, fearful, doubtful, doesn't really want to see Jesus for the right reasons. And then you read in chapter 9, verse 6, they departed from the villages preaching the gospel and hearing. And look at verse, verse 10a. On their return, the apostles told them all that they had done. They were proclaiming the gospel. 
People were coming to faith. Mark chapter 6 says this. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The ministry is going out. The apostles are doing what they are called to do. They're living on mission. They're declaring the gospel. They're authenticating their message through healings and through deliverances. And they're telling everybody about Jesus. Now listen. Between these two contrasts, notice there's no middle ground. Herod and the people in the villages who were, who were, were saying, get out of here, we don't want you. And they're dust, taking the dust off their feet. And then you have those who are receiving the gospel, being healed, and, and responding in faith. That's the only two options. Sitting back and not responding is the same as rejection. Is the same as rejection. Being interested in Jesus is not enough. Being curious about Jesus is not enough. Being, you know, wanting to meet him someday is not enough. And as far as we know, Herod never trusted or relied on Christ for salvation. Not going to judge his soul. It takes more than curiosity. It takes repentance of sin and faith in Christ. He's the son of God. He, he had lived a life of perfection and died the death of a substitute. He was then raised, he rose from the dead three days later, calling everyone everywhere to trust him, to love, and to follow him. And we need to do more than just be curious about Jesus. We need to come to the right conclusion about Jesus, knowing him that he is Lord and Savior, King of Kings, died as a substitute, rose from the dead, and calling everyone everywhere to repent, turn, and trust him. As the band comes up, let me ask this question. We have to ask this question. Not only do you know who Jesus is, do you know who Jesus is, but do you know what he has done and do you know what he's calling us to? That's the question. Do you know who Jesus is, do you know what he has done, and do you know what he's calling us to? Who is Jesus? The one true and living God. Jesus the one who took on humanity, entered into this sinful, broken, jacked up, and twisted world, to live a perfect life, a life we could never live, and then to die as a payment for our sins, to take the wrath, the just penalty that we deserve in our place on the cross as our substitute, and then rise again from the grave, declaring that the substitute sacrifice has been accepted, and all those who call upon him will be forgiven of all their sins, and join him, and follow him, and have a relationship with Christ, and with God, and be reconciled, Paul says, to a holy God through the work of Jesus. And King Jesus will reign and rule and come again in justice and righteousness and establish his eternal kingdom. No more tears, no more sin, no more sickness, no more death. That's the gospel of the kingdom. That's who Jesus is. And here's the mission. That's who he is. What has he come to do? Die for sinners. And what has he called us to do? Family, listen, to live on mission. The word mission... I'm almost done. Just give me one more minute. The word mission or missionary comes from the Latin word missio, which is Greek word is apostolos, sent ones. The Bible says that Jesus called the church together, his people together, and said, I have been sent by the Father, now I'm sending you. We're all missionaries. If you love Jesus, you're part of his kingdom, and you have, he reigns and rules in your life, and you have been forgiven of your sin, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you have a mission. To love people, to care for people, and to tell them about Jesus. That's our mission. 
And the question is, will, will we join him on mission? Will we join him on mission? And maybe you never trusted Christ. Maybe you're not sure who he is. I'm telling you who he is, the king of kings. He gave his life so that you can have life. He was rejected by the Father so that you could be brought in. Abandoned by the Father so you can be brought in. Have you trusted him? That's what this table is all about. The bread, the cup, his body was broken, the blood that was shed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we're going to keep doing communion. Remember what he's done for us until he comes back again and he reigns and rules. Have you trusted Christ? The band's going to play. We're going to spend some time in our seat and just praying, confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, and then I'll come up and lead us through the celebration of what Christ has done. The table is for you if you're a follower of Christ. That's all we ask, that you have trusted Christ, you've been born again of his spirit. You can come and grab the elements, sit back at your seat, and wait for me to come up, and I'll lead everybody through, okay? Father, we ask that you here now today, right now, would speak to us by the power of your spirit, that you would open our eyes by faith to see the glory and the beauty and the incalculable worth of Jesus Christ, that he came and lived and died and rose for us. And that, Father, together as we remember his broken bodies, we drink of the cup, remembering the blood that was shed. Father, we will celebrate the forgiveness of Christ, but also help us not to keep it to ourselves. You have called us in and you are sending us out to love others and to tell others about Jesus. Lord, please give us opportunities even this week to do so. As we think of even VBS coming up, the opportunities to tell people about Jesus. And Lord, we pray. Your blessing now, in his name we pray, amen.